Whether you're a pistachio purist who loves the experience of cracking them open, or you just love the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios is the perfect healthy snack when hunger strikes. I happen to love me my pistachios. Uh, I don't want to screw around with the nuts, so I love the no-shells pistachios. Anyway, there are a bunch of flavors to choose from, like honey roasted, smoky barbecue, jalapeno, lime, and more. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts, and each ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. The best part of spring cleaning is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless, and then Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data, unlimited talk and text, delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone and any Mint Mobile plan and bring your own phone number along with your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. My team here, they're on Mint Mobile and they like it. For a fraction of the cost, Mint Mobile proved to have excellent coverage with no drop calls or unsent texts. Plus, they make it super easy for me to activate my device just by following a few simple steps online. And bam, done. To get this new customer offer and the new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash literally. That's mintmobile.com slash literally. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash literally. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I like the pile of wonderful, interesting stuff behind you. It's called hoarding, Rob. It's hoarding. <laughs> everybody. Welcome to Literally with me, Robbie Lowe. One of the greats today, Judd Apatow. I mean, one of the funniest, smartest, most accomplished dudes around. I mean, he, I, I'm looking at his filmography right now. I don't even know where to begin. Anchorman, This is 40. Uh, I mean, Freaks and Geeks, um, Undeclared, Larry Sanders Show. Wrote on Cable Guy, um, Girls, and you know, there's 75 other massive cultural hits. The 40 year old Virgin. It just goes on and on and on. Um, this is a guy who was the voice of his generation, and then just became the voice of everybody's generation. And um, writer, director, producer, and more famous at the moment for being the father of Maude Apatow. And I'm sure that he's going to love that I've distilled his career down to that. As any good father would, let's face it. So stand by for Mr. Judd Apatow. I realized recently that when people say they've read a book, I assume that meant they read it from cover to cover. It doesn't mean that, as it turns out. It means <laughs> they read something of it and then they moved on. I've, I've read War and Peace under those uh, mm -hmm. uh, definitions, for sure. Right, but uh, this is uh, you know I've got a lot of junk. You know I like the I like the goofy things in life. I was talking to a friend. You know some people they, they don't like the memories. Maybe it's because like I don't have a great a great memory. So I like the the junk from the times. You know so the yes. posters, the little stupid things from set. Uh, I'll and I'll just keep them forever. I'll keep all of them. I mean. Uh, I, for instance, I'm, I'm doing a documentary about George Carlin and I'll mm. just hold on to the George Carlin box set for too long. Am I working on therapy? Sure. I'll look at shortcut through therapy. Mm. This is what I do. I, I'm surrounded by ephemera. Do you re, so what's the bedside table look like? Is that also? It's bad. It used to bad. not be bad, but now, now it's bad, but I just moved into a new office. I have a little more space there. And so there's a plan to try to move all this out. 
But you know what they say about hoarding. You know what? It's not hoarding if your shit is awesome. That's right. That's my theory. Well, I and I can I, I can tell even from here, I would have a good time pulling some shit out of there. I'd be like, hmm, I'd like to read this. I'm I'm sure I have some of your shit in here somewhere. There's there's a St. Elmo's Fire thing in here somewhere. Is there's it, a I hope you have one of my <laughs> books at least. A little stories I only tell my friends up there. Come on. Oh yeah. I mean, no, it's in there. It's let's all in go. there. <laughs> um, to, so the George Carlin documentary, what what st- part of the process are you in actually at the moment? I just locked picture oh, a Jesus, couple of days really? ago. Holy shit. And we're about to start scoring it, which is, you know, it's, you know, it's about three and a half hours or more. So it's, it's a big music score for us to do. But yeah, we've been working on it since before the pandemic. You know, he lived a long time. You know, you want to do a documentary about someone who didn't live that long. But that's when right. Somebody, so when somebody was doing stand-up since the early 60s, uh, that's a lot of material to cover. Did you ever meet George Carlin in your days? I, I, you know what? I didn't. And there's a whole, and I'm sure you, you've you now been around as lo- so long that they're, they're the people we get to meet. And they're, they're the people that we just missed. And sometimes, like the just missed list is really surprising. Like I hadn't met, I hadn't met Redford until wow. re- recently. Um, but Carlin was one I, I, and I never met Richard Pryor. Yeah. Um, I just, I was just too, a little too young to be in that world, that world. But you met a lot of them though. You met a lot of them. What, what was the highlight of the one you met that really blew your mind and lived up to the dream? I went to dinner with, at a really small dinner party and was seated next to Mick Jagger. That's pretty good. And, and he was so charismatic. Yeah. You understood everything about human sexuality at that dinner. I was like, you know what? I get it. And, um, Cary Grant. Oh, wow. Cary Grant. So you must've been a young man. then. I was trying to date his daughter and she wasn't having anything to do. She was, she was not buying what I was selling. Um, but it didn't, prevent me from going to her father's i didn't know she that carrie grant was her dad <laughs> i didn't know that and she invited me over to watch i had an after school special an abc <laughs> after school special I was, I was 15 and she goes come watch it with my dad he's an actor I'm like great <laughs> groovy and i drove over and he answered the door in a white bathrobe and I was like, I knew Cary Granit from the Flintstones. Like I knew yeah. that, that cartoon, but I was vaguely aware of Cary. Anyway, I ended up watching my after-school special with Cary Grant. And, and did um, he like it? Did he learn anything about young people? Two things happened. He said that I reminded him of a young Warren Beatty, which like nice. made me super, super happy. And then um, he chased me down the driveway in his robe and... Um, with an armful of Fabergé products. Cause he was a, a, a brand Im- before brand ambassador was a thing. He was a brand ambassador. He invented he's that. Like, he's like, here's a soap on a rope and some brute Fabergé <laughs> for you young man. And um, so I had a soap on a rope from Cary Grant for like months in my shower. You don't want to use that. You don't want to soap that up too fast. No, you, I, I kept it as long as I could. He also gave me a really good piece of advice. I can't remember the context, but I remember the advice. It was, when you're sitting on a dais and they're serving food, don't eat anything. Or they'll have a picture of you with a hot dog in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that comes up every once in a while. That's, that actually comes up all the time. It comes up all the time. That's a usable piece of advice. That's a and what actionable. Was the, what was the story of the, of the after school special? I'd like to know what the. Okay, I'm going to give you the title and then you get one guess to the plot. Schoolboy father. Um, heroin addicted teen parent. Everything but the heroin addicted. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's like, that's the thing about the titles. They told you right out. It was exactly. like, it was like, I'm dying of a nut allergy. <laughs> Who played uh, the, the woman that you impregnated? Uh, the late Dana Plato of different strokes fame. What? Wow. So that was, that was a good one. And uh, does it surface? Does it bubble up? Are you forced to confront these clips? Oh, yes. More often than you'd like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> more, more, with the operative more often than, than I would like. Uh, I, 
that's the thing. You have, do you have any, you don't have anything like that. All your work is, you showed up fully formed, all your shit. Yeah, I don't have uh, full humiliations. Uh, you don't. Most, most things that are bad, like no one even wants to, not wants to dig for. They're not like interesting bad. But, you know, I, I, I was like you, where I, I was excited to meet people. And so like when I was a kid, I used to interview comedians for my high school radio station because I just wanted to meet people yeah. who wanted who did what I wanted to do. And I wanted to ask them how they did it. And I, I, I put out a book a few years ago called Sick in the Head, which was yes. my interviews. Most of them were from high school, but then I did some new ones with people like Chris Rock and, and John Stewart. And then I just, right now, they just put out Sicker in the Head. So during the pandemic, when everyone was depressed and had nothing to do, I called them and asked them to do interviews for the book because I knew that they were available. Who was like the great white whale for you? That you're like, oh, I can't wait. The one that meant the most by far Letterman, mm -hmm. because, you know, when I was a young comedian I, and I lived with Adam Sandler and we were first starting out, that was the dream, you know, was to get on Letterman. And I remember Adam got it first. He was the first person who got on Letterman and he was really young. I don't know if he was 21 or yeah. 22. Yeah. And we couldn't believe it. He, he went and did Letterman and did his, his kind of goofy act back then. And we were like, it can be done. We, we now know someone who, who got on there. And then through all the years, he's helped everybody, you know, by having pe people on. But just being funny, he was the, you know, I think we all talked like him and tried to think like him for so long. So, so to get to ask him, you know, how did you do it? How did it feel? And he was very open and very open about that. He thought maybe he missed a lot of it because he was so stressed out trying to do a good job and caught up in the competition of it that he probably didn't enjoy it and pay attention to it. He totally, he copped to the competition element of it. Yeah, he was, I mean, it's a great interview. He's just very honest about, you know, it's it's so intense that you you almost miss it. It flies by you, right? I, which I totally understand because I think when we make movies and TV shows, sometimes you feel like, I always use the analogy, I feel like I'm thrown into a firing, a frying pan. And then it ends, and then suddenly, I, like normal life returns, and I'm like, "That was crazy! How stressed out, how hard, how much hard work that was!" And then suddenly, it just ends. And then at some point, you go, "I think I got to jump back in the frying pan." But imagine if you do that for thirty straight years without a break, really. No, a nightly thing like that. I mean, the pressure of it. I, I just, I can't, I can't imagine how they do it. I mean. Well, and, you know, you you have a great connection to Gary Shandling and, you know, his his sort of um, satire, I guess. I mean, it's a satire of, yeah. of the Letterman, right, of the, mm -hmm. um, that show, which was amazing, obviously. And you show ran it in the last year. I didn't realize that. Yeah, the last year of the show, Gary called me and said, will you help out running the show? So me and Adam Resnick, uh, who created Get a Life and is a brilliant writer, we ran the show and... I mean, it was stressful. It was a, that was a stressful job because Gary's bar was so high for how great he wanted it to be that most of the time you were failing him and you felt it. You know, imagine if somebody just wanted to hit a Grand Slam home run with every line and every scene and, and you're trying to guess what he would like. It, it, was, it was very hard to, to live up to it. But my thing was I would just try to get him to have fun. Because he was so tired from acting and editing and being in charge of everything. And I thought, well, the, the best thing I could do is remind Gary that this is supposed to be fun writing comedy, writing stories. And so as often as I could, I tried to just pull him into a room and go, let's just fix this, fix this scene together, you know, and, and try to make him laugh about it. And he was, so he was editing. He, he truly was. His fingerprints were all over it from, from day oh, one. Oh, yeah. And, and also, you know, back then... There wasn't a lot of single camera television. Most cam most television that was comedy was in front of a crowd, and there was a system of how you would you know, yeah. read it on Monday and rehearse for a few days, and then tape it in front of an audience on Friday. People hadn't really tried to make a hilarious half-hour show that was like a movie every week. So I think the whole production was just wrong, like the way they did it physically, because they would they would read it and rehearse for a few days, and then they'd shoot the whole show in two days. 17 pages a day.
but they didn't shoot it like a sitcom. They shot it like a movie. And you know, when you do a movie, you shoot like three to five pages a day. I mean, so can you imagine shooting 17 pages a day and you're in almost all of it and you're acting with Rip Torn and Jeffrey Tambor and Janine Garofalo and everybody and, and you're just going, this is too fast. I don't have enough bandwidth in my brain to do this. And then every time you get a breath, a writer walks up to you and, and says, do you have time to answer a question about next week's script? Oh. And you're like, I'm in the middle of this reality right now. So it was so hard. But he was brilliant at it, and we would get through it. But but during it, we all felt like we are just like boiling frogs right now. As an actor, I'm always fascinated with sort of how the other half lives because we only can only have our own experiences. So, like, when an actor gets a script, whether it's Gary or anybody on anything that you've done who you respect and who is either the star of it or a partner in it or whatever. And they go, is this funny? Like there's always got to be a moment where the, it's maybe it's just because comedy is so subjective. You one creates their comedy family. So you clearly all have the same taste and sit in like the same, have the same touchstones. So I, my guess is that these discussions aren't common, but there's always going to be that moment where you're like, I don't, do you love this joke? I don't know if I love yeah. it. And how does yeah. that play out for you? Like, give, give me, how do people come to you and, and do that? Or do they? I'm asking for, what I'm asking for is I'm asking you to direct me now. Tell me how I should handle the idiots I work with with comedy when I go. <laughs> that's, that's really what I'm asking. It's like, how yeah. do I go to somebody effectively and go, I don't like this joke? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's like that you did these opportunities through the process to question things, right? So the moment they hand you the script for the new episode or, yeah. or at the after the table read, you have a little sidebar uh, conversation. And and if you have good, you know, collaborators, uh, and you've worked with some amazing people like uh, Mogul and Paul and The Grinder, and like people who are, you know, hilarious, um, uh, you know, then they're excited about that conversation because yes. if you say, this isn't working for me. How can I make it work? Uh, I think it could be a healthy conversation. Here's where it falls apart. If someone in that equation really isn't funny or is really wrong, it's frustrating to someone in that conversation. So if your note is great and the writers are not great, uh, you could never connect, right? If you're just out of tune with someone like, or I've seen people where both people are hilarious, but they have different senses of humor. And so they can't seem to get it going. And I remember I met Larry Gelbart, the man who created MASH and wrote Tootsie. And he was talking about the movie that he, he did with uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd called Neighbors. Yes. And he said they hired... The, we were going to hire the director, John Avelson, to direct this comedy. And he had just directed Rocky. And he said, I didn't know that I'm supposed to take him out to lunch. And if he isn't funny, I don't hire him. I just didn't know that. And so we hired him and he just didn't get the joke the way he wished that uh, he would. And he said, but from then on, on every project, I would have a lunch, multiple lunches. And if that person didn't seem funny and get it. I, I did not work with them. Where else can you go surfing and skiing in the same day? Or check out a world-class art museum and camp out under a brilliant night sky same day. Or hike through the redwoods and get a luxury spa treatment. There's only one answer. California. No matter where you go across this state, you will find a way to play. I, look, I love California. Um, and I have not yet surfed and skied in the same day, although I do do both. So that is on my bucket list. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. Hey, listeners. Ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, 
or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash rob. That's harrys.com slash rob for a $3 trial set. Why is it the comedy is so subject? I mean, look, there are there's so many schools, right? I guess is really yeah. what it is. There's just schools of comedy. Right. And yeah. You find your, you find your people. Right. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, you know, like you're in, you know, like Wayne's world. Right. But that's a style. That's a joke style that we all love. But then there's comedy that might be like a Coen brothers, dark comedy. Mm-hmm. And it is very different. Or it, it might be a really brutal, brutal, dark comedy. And, and the people who make them, are different people who, who who want different things out of their storytelling. And so if you love a, a lighter comedy, a joyful comedy, and suddenly you're collaborating with the darkest comedy maker, you know, with Todd Salon's <laughs> Happiness, you know, God. it might work. Happiness has to be, it's the darkest comedy ever made. But like, it's, it's there's incredible. not a, ever going to be a competition, is there? Right, and John Lovitz is brilliant in it. But when you think about you know, if you don't get that and you're on set going, what do we, you want me to what? What? What do you want me to do? Want me to what? And it's like, it's like music. You know, sometimes uh, sure, a heavy metal guitar player sometimes can fit into a country band and knows those moves. But sometimes their thing, you know, is, is different. You don't need someone shredding uh, with the Dixie Chicks. Sometimes you might. But, you know, it depends on the song. I mean, it, it, sensibility is, is it, I'm, I am obsessed with it. And if we could all understand the crack the code of sensibilities, we would make nothing but massive hits all the time. This is the funniest thing. So my, my friend Nick Stoller and some guys from The Grinder just called me and said, so we have something for you. We've written for you. We think you're really going to like it. It's a, um, it's comedy, single camera, you know played totally real it's you know a family and their dynamics you're the patriarch but you're a potato <laughs> and i went they came to the right guy i said i'm a, I'm a potato <laughs> said, yeah you're you're a potato you will be a potato like an animated potato and we never comment on it you live under the bed and there's a rock that you like to fuck and i'm like <laughs> this is like th- like that for me comedy wise i'm like i'm interested in that I'm yes. so much more interested in that than a conventional setup for a comedy. Yes. And when is this show airing? <laughs> right. You're already like, I'm in, right? <laughs> I will I will let you know. I mean, we'll see how far, how far it goes, but it did make me laugh. Um, I have a quick, a very deep dive question for you. In The Cable Guy, mm-hmm. which you wrote, credited or uncredited? I forget. Well, it was a you know it was a, like a page one rewrite. I did not get credit because I was also a producer, and the Writers Guild has a very arcane rules 
which is if you're the producer, they don't want you stealing credits from the writer. So the bar to get a credit as one of the writers is obscenely high. It's one of those tricky things because not many people in the Writers Guild do those types of rewrites. Most people are the people who don't want to lose credit right. to directors and producers. So when they take votes, like, do you want to you know, adjust this to something that would be just the same? So anyone rewriting a script should have the same amount they have to change to get on the writing credits. But for directors and producers, it's way more. So that's not fair. So I'm obsessed with movies that I know famous people did uncredited rewrites on. Like when I watch Moneyball, I'm like, oh, that's Aaron Sorkin wrote that scene. 100% Aaron wrote that scene. Or Oh, oh Carrie Fisher. I remember I uh, yep. did, uh, did some uh, polishes on The Wedding Singer and... Carrie Fisher had just done some polishes on The Wedding Singer, and Tim Hurley wrote the script, and the script was amazing. Uh, but it is funny, the people who join in, because I think it is good that we collaborate on these things, and I've brought people in on my things all the time to, to just say, help me, is this good enough? And, you know, it's great if you could do everything by yourself. But Do you, do you ever get, because you, you famously have, like, a, a fully functioning writer's room basically all the time. Am I, am I right about this in your company? Well, what we like to do when we have a script is, uh, you know, write it. And then, you know, when we're not in a pandemic, we'll do a table read and invite like 20 of our friends to just give notes, brutal, honest criticism, because most people don't get honest criticism. So you really need those people who will tell, tell you, you know, this is really not working. I mean, you, you need that person to explain what you can't see anymore because you're so deep in it that you don't know that you've you know, misjudge something. And then on set, we always hire a couple of people to be on set. You know, I just shot this movie called The Bubble that's going to be on Netflix uh, 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 later in the spring. And these guys, the Dawson's brothers uh, in London, they were on set every day just pitching me jokes and trying to help me think of more jokes and better jokes you know, all day long. And they're also producers on the movie. And I think a lot of people work that way in comedy. I mean, I think when they did Veep, they'd have the entire writing staff on set all day watching every moment they were shooting. And if anything could be better, people would try to pitch a fix. And and that's helpful. And that's why you know that comedies are harder than dramas. Because you, you don't have 11 writers on the set when you're shooting a drama. Everyone feels like it's pretty locked down. But, you know, when comedy fails... It's terrible. Oh, it's you know, <laughs> And so like a drama could fail and you don't notice the scene was shit. That's right. It just seemed like, oh, that was two people talking. But when people tell a joke and it's not funny, like the air comes out of the room. You get uncomfortable. You feel, you're filled with shame. <laughs> My idea of a living hell would be being stuck on something that I didn't find funny. Yeah. And for a long time. For a long time. And it would just be hell well it's all, it's all the choice right it's the choice of what show to take to know i'm in an environment with people who get what i do if you do you know, parks and rec you're like i'm with my people yeah and i know i'm safe here and then they get it and one of the reasons why i do books like sicker in the head it's literally an excuse for me to sit with my heroes and to continue to try to learn so i do the books for charity i do it for this charity called 826 which uh Provides free tutoring to kids. Oh, great. And it's, it's a great charity. Uh, but it's also an excuse for me to sit in a room with Sasha Baron Cohen for two and a half hours and literally go, how do you do it, man? Seriously, how do you do it? Uh, you know? I mean. And, and, that's, that, and I need that. You always need that. You always want to be trying to get better. I think the, origin, the, for the first Borat is there's never been anything like it. I mean, it took my, it literally, it's like the cliche of it taking your breath yeah, away it's a it's the high water mark i remember he asked me to watch uh his showtime show he was showing it to people um and the show is so hilarious but he brought in people to watch it who didn't know what they were gonna see and it was not like his fans either he just brought in normal people i don't think they were sasha baron cohen fans or borat fans he just brought in like anybody to watch the show. Oh boy. And for the first few minutes, it was like, you could tell they're just going, what are we watching? But 
10 minutes in, that room had erupted. And everybody, no matter their point of view, he, he just owned them. And they were laughing so hard. And it's not a normal laugh because there's so much tension in it because you don't know what's going to happen that it's truly explosive. Who is, Am- who like, is America, it's called. Who is America, yes. And I feel like jackass is like that. If I want to laugh really hard, yeah, I'll put on jackass. Because there are things that are funny, but you, you go, yeah, that was funny. Hmm. Maybe you giggle a couple of times. But then there's things that actually make you piss. Okay, so let me ask you something. There, so it, it is comedy if you enjoy it and you smile and you literally say, well, you just use it, you acknowledge, you go, you know what, that was funny, but you didn't laugh. Mm-hmm. That's still comedy, right? Yes, yes. You don't, it's just a different comedy that makes you laugh out loud. And that's, it just is rarer, I think. Is. I mean, there's thoughtful comedy, but then there's some comedy that's just riotous. You know, Mel Brooks, yes. riotous, the Farrelly brothers. And every right. once in a while, you'd stumble into something the first time you saw The Hangover, and it destroys you. And there's, or Sandler's movies, you know, they're, you know, when, when they're rocking, you know, you're just so happy that someone took the effort to try to get you to lose your mind laughing. It's funny because when we made the funny people, Sandler and I, you know, it was a more thoughtful type of comedy drama. Right. And Sandler said to me, I know everyone's going to want me to do more of these after this. (laughs) He's like, but the truth is there's nothing harder in the world than making people laugh deliriously. You know, and and we always talked about how you don't get respect for that. It's so easy to make people cry. I mean, whatever the formulas are to make people sad. But every single time you make a comedy, you have to reinvent the wheel. You're, you're just starting from scratch. When it's interesting, you can literally put on the right music and people will cry. Oh, yeah. You get a and, little Itzhak Perlman going, and, you're and there's no And there's no comedy music. There's bad comedy music. One of my yeah. pet peeves is, <laughs> is, is when I get um, something that they've, you know, the composer has scored and it's the funny scene. Yeah. And you know it's funny <laughs> because they're playing the comedy. Yeah. It's some Hungarian waltz comes on which although i don't know how he did it but larry david has that music he does which is so he's he's doing that music but it's almost a comment on that music and so it works in a different way it's interesting like it's so on the nose that it's not on the nose at all anymore yes that yeah it, it is a it is a brilliant use of that type of music that show is just beyond belief great. Uh, give me your top Mount Rushmore comedies, movies and TV. Well, being there by the, the Peter Sellers movie, the Hal Ashby movie, mm-hmm. is always on the top. I mean, the scene where he's watching TV and she's trying to have sex, him and Shirley mm-hmm. MacLaine, it, it doesn't really get better than that in nope. comedy. Nope. I always go back to broadcast news and you know everything by, by James Brooks, he's all the, the great devil. James Brooks. Yeah, <laughs> devil. What did you think the devil would, would look, look like? like with a pitchfork and a tail? No, he would look like him. I mean, I think Taxi might have been the biggest influence on my whole career. I just, I just ate up Taxi as a kid. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I ever read to try to learn how to do comedy was someone gave me forty episodes of Taxi. Wow! And I just, I just sat with them and I studied them like I was at college. Like, how did they work? I tried to find like the commonalities of the structures and the, the joke style. I love, I mean, I do love the Farley brothers and I love those jackass movies. I, I'm, you know, Cameron Crowe, I think Fast Times at Ridgemont High is, is oh, a big one. I mean, people talk about the, the, the recipes for comedy and, and they always, the, the subject of how grounded is it? Is it earned? The emotional connections that comes up all the time, but and, and I guess in theory, most of the time you need it, but there is, there is the odd Ace Ventura where it's just, let's go with the joke. Let's just go hard. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny. The movie I just made, The Bubble, the premise of it is a, a group of actors are in a hotel in London trying to finish making 
a dinosaur action movie oh, during the pandemic. Amazing. And they're trying to follow the pandemic rules, but they're stuck in the hotel. They can't see anyone or do anything except make this movie. And no matter how badly it's going wrong, the studio won't let them leave until the movie is done. And they all have are having a nervous breakdown. And it, it was the broadest movie I've ever made. And in a lot of ways, the least emotion of any movie I ever made, because I thought, oh, this is kind of like a Tropic Thunder, Christopher mm. Guest kind of movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a character piece, but it's meant to just be bonkers. And, and then you go, well, how much satire should I have in it? How much emotion do I need for all these actors? I want it to be silly, but I need arcs. I do need... What was the answer to that? I'm cur- I'm so curious. What what was the formula? I, you know, I'm not exactly sure how you would describe it because it isn't my normal reality level. I'm usually trying to get to a James Brooks reality level, right, or a Shandling level, like a deep emotional yeah. core to to it all. And th- this is a little more on the surface, but that also allows it to be way sillier, mm-hmm. and you know, people can do a lot more. And the actors are all great. A lot of it is enjoying these people. And, you know, like it's Karen Gillan and Keegan-Michael Key and Leslie Mann and Maria Baklova and, and Kate McKinnon and, and Peter Serafinowicz and, and, and all these people that we just enjoy watching. Is Duchovny in it? Did I read Duchovny? And, and, and David Duchovny, who, who is married to, to Leslie's character uh, oh, in the movie. They're the fighting couple. And... So it's it's a performance piece as well. So I'm interested for people to see it because it's as close as I've moved towards a Mel Brooks reality uh, in my whole career. So so it's on one end of the Judd Apatow spectrum. There's this is forty, and then there would be the bubble. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely, it's all the way on the other side, and that'll be on Netflix. In the spring. I love This is 40. This is 40 is one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. I love, oh, love, thanks. love, love it. Love everything. Now, should I do This is 50? Because if I do it, you know, it's time. Yes. This is the year to do it. You yes. know, it's like my boyhood. I will argue, I will posit that 50 is way more significant than 40. Although when you made This is 40 to us, it was significant because we were yes. 40. But bro, we're 50. Yes. Um, I know it's one of the things I need to ask you about. So we both have kids. Maud is crushing it. I agree. And Euphoria is such a big hit. Um, it's so funny. Like that show is watching a show capture people's imaginations is really something to behold. I mean, you've had it tons. I mean, from from zeitgeisty like niche freaks and geeks to huge hits. So you you're well versed in it. But when it happens to your kid, it's got to be a whole other thing. I'm imagining. Am I am I right? Yeah, because you're so nervous for them. You want to show that they're on to be great. You want people to enjoy it and to recognize uh, her work. Uh, and on another level, I'm jealous of it because it's so good. Right. Right. I mean, I I, I just see what Sam Levinson, the the writer uh, director, does with it. You know, this the scene work is remarkable. The camera work is all so inventive. Yeah. I mean, he's taking everything to another level. There's a lot of really funny uh, material this year. And some of the stuff with Maude is really funny. And he's so collaborative. So I'm, I'm yeah, it's, it's almost exciting for me just to watch it come together. Because as a parent, I'm just reading the scripts, at, you know, and hearing what they're doing and what their challenges are. And then to have the people respond this season in such a giant way. Because the ratings are like... It's like Game of Thrones all of a sudden. And I also know the pressure of it because it's a lot of work. As you know, our television is really taxing. So, you know, your kids go into show business and they think, oh, this is like a fun thing. We're in show business. And then what is it? No, it's 12, 14 hours a day on a set for month after month after month. And it is a really hard, pressure-filled job. These these are some of the you know hardest things. Um, that you could do in our industry. And that's why I, whenever I see television, that's good because movies are a little bit of a different beast. But when you see television, that's good. You have no idea how good that it is. Like it, it, it takes so much and Maude being at the top of the list. Is she, she must be psyched right though. Right. She must be enjoying the ride or is she just too in the middle of it to enjoy it. 
Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, this is a, a moment where, you know, you worked all year and now people are just seeing it and you're mm-hmm. going, oh, I hope they like what we did. And, and, and I know from girls, you know, that it's rare that you're in something that people want to debate. Yes. I, I, always, I always said, you know, it's working when there's a debate in every episode, you could write an editorial about it. And what does it mean? And, and uh, that's, that's an amazing thing because there's so much content. There's like 400 shows that it's very hard to be the one that there's a, a larger conversation about. And I think that's one of the effects of the streaming era, which is these people have a bottomless need for content. And as a result, it's very easy to make things that kind of appear and disappear and people watch them and they don't even remember that they did watch them. Yeah. Like if you ask them a year later, Hey, did you see that show? They might go, I might have. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, it's true. Do you think if, um, if I'm clearly not the first person to ever come up with this idea, but obviously if freaks and geeks had, it had been on a streamer now it's, it'd be running for multiple seasons for sure. Right. You would, yeah, you would think so. But, you know, there's something that is also tricky about the streamers, which is, I feel like back in the day on television, there was this belief that the head of a network would pick one or two shows that didn't have huge ratings to keep on because they thought it made the network look good. Yes. And it was maybe, it maybe was their favorite show. So the first season of Seinfeld maybe got bad ratings or the first season of Cheers got bad ratings. But somebody at the network was like, I kind of like it. Let's hang with it. Let's let's see if it catches on. And I feel like in the streamers, they have so much information. They know the second you take a piss, how long you peed for. If you finished the episode, how long did it take you to finish the season? Did you bail from the season? That it's much harder to fight them to get that opportunity to survive because they know everything about every time it was viewed. And so I don't know if those people are going, you know what? I don't care. I just, I'm proud of that show. I wanted to represent what we do. And I hope that's happening. But sometimes I wonder if it's not happening as much because that's the human quality, even of whatever, the Warren Littlefield era or Grant Tinker or Brandon Tartikoff, that you just knew that in there was a beating heart. And and they made mistakes also, but every once in a while you felt it like someone there just loved Letterman at NBC. And when the morning show bombed, they're like, I love you. I'm going to find another way to make you a star and to get you a hit show. And then they move them to late night. And, and that's because it wasn't just metrics. Well, that's so interesting you say that because the other worry is that the the business model being driven by subscribers and not even really ratings that there is an argument i've heard that they they that even a hit after a while isn't that interesting to them because it's not bringing anyone new to subscribe yes that's what I, someone explained to me that the reason why you only see three seasons of most shows the three season rule is, yes is is because you know they don't just want the show to be a hit they want it to be a show to be the type of show that makes people sign up for the service. So I think one reason why you see things like a lot of Dave Chappelle specials, for instance, is because people will get Netflix just to see Dave, you know, they're, they're excited. And so that, and, and I'm sure there are people who might have things like, I want to see squid game. And so they will just, maybe they've never had Netflix before. They get it just to see that. And they're looking for those type of real, uh, culture exploding moments and you know after a few seasons they unless the audience is really demanding it and there's a lot of energy i don't think it's the same model where in the old days the reason why a show stayed on the air was because when they got to a hundred they could sell it into syndication and then maybe you'd see it on in the afternoons you'd see seinfeld at four o'clock in new york on the local station and that's how they made money but they know they don't really need a hundred anymore. And I think maybe it's just nostalgia for us as an audience to think shows should have a hundred episodes. You know, we, we did, uh, I think 34 episodes of love on Netflix and wow. we got to tell a lot of a story. We wish we could have told more, 
But in this day and age, we're like, wow, that's that's kind of a lot. So a lot. I, I don't even I don't even know what the the right answer should be. I know for me, when I like something, if the quality is good, I don't want it to go away because in the in the old days, TV was on all year. You'd watch watch Mash September to May. You know, there'd be twenty two or twenty four episodes, and it was your friend. Yes, it's not that anymore. For I mean, there's some of that obviously on network television, and we watch that. But even there, I think a lot of people will allow themselves to miss episodes so they can watch four at a time. Yes. You know, people want to like watch it like a movie more and more. And that's just a new habit. And I never made stuff to be consumed like that. I like that Girls was on once a week and it was in the discussion with the audience for a few months, even if we only did 12. Looking for a sparkling clean bathroom without so much hassle? Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner is here to revolutionize your cleaning future. Just spray today, rinse tomorrow, and voila! Enjoy a sparkling clean shower and tub without any scrubbing. It's the secret to a hassle-free clean bathroom that many are discovering. With over 33,000 five-star reviews, Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner has proven its effectiveness on shower glass, fixtures, tiles, and more, ensuring everything shines with minimal effort. This product has gained a loyal following thanks to its once-a-week application that makes it a standout in the cleaning aisle. Join the ranks of satisfied users who enjoy more me time and less clean time with Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner, available at Amazon, Lowe's, Menards, Home Depot, and Ace Hardware. It's the perfect choice for anyone wanting to simplify their cleaning routine. Don't miss out on a chance to transform your bathroom cleaning with just one application a week. Pick up a bottle of Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner today and join the thousands who've already made the switch to Effortless Clean. Shopping for humans is hard. Shopping for your dog is easy. Thanks to Bark. Every month, we deliver toys and treats just for your pup. They deserve to be spoiled every month. At Bark, we send your dog a whole collection of toys and treats made just for them every single month. Whether it's our fun plush toys or our ultra-tough toys from Super Chewer, we give your dog exactly what they want. And for a limited time, we will double your first box for free. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com Rob. BarkBox is so convenient and delivers straight to your door and more importantly, right to your dog. I can't wait to try out BarkBox. My dogs need their toys, particularly the chewable toys. Sign up now at BarkBox.com Rob for an exclusive offer. This ad is now over. Let's get back to petting our dogs. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high-performance TVs. They're certainly out here there. But when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash ev6 kia movement that inspires knocked up the dvd the commentary is 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 legendary i'm a big big um i love hearing how people made what they made and the behind the scenes is why i did this podcast because it's sort of my own iteration of it how did you guys, were you guys all in the same room when you, how, how did that, 
infamous, famous commentary come to be? And what are your thoughts on it? Well, we always would uh, do those commentaries with as much energy as we made the movie. I mean, I think I learned it from Adam McKay. Adam McKay was doing the commentary for Anchorman, and he had the cast of Anchorman there. But he decided to make it into a whole comedy. So for no reason, he had Lou Rawls with the cast doing the commentary. Amazing. And then he had Andy Richter call in the middle of the commentary to complain that he wasn't cast as Brick Tamlin. And then Carell and, and, and him get into a fight about who would have been better for the part. And, and he made it into a little comic play of its own, the commentary. And so we started trying to do weird things, commentaries where people are in their characters on the Freaks and Geeks commentaries, things like that. So I am a fan of the DVD extra, and I mourn that with the move to streaming that there aren't extras as they should be. You know, I, I need a home for my, you know, my, my, my gag reels and my line-a-thons. Yes, that, that great Melissa McCarthy run. Exactly. exactly. I mean, like when someone's funny in a movie, sometimes you need two sentences for the movie. But you remember that on the day, they were funny for 35 minutes. And you feel like, I want to share that with people because it's, it is really special. So in Funny People, I showed Adam making phony phone calls when we were kids because I used to videotape his phony phone calls. And on the DVD, I put all the uncut phony phone calls uh, that Adam did. And so we need to tell Netflix and HBO Max, put the DVD extras on the service. If I could have accomplished one thing today, it is that request. It's it's an interesting time. There's so much. The good news is there's so much um, opportunity. The machine demands the content. So we're all busier than we've ever been. But yes. It's all shaking out. What What is it all going to mean to to our experiences? That's what we'll have to. That's what this this is fifty will have to be about a little bit. You, <laughs> exactly. Have you written Have you written this is fifty? Are you thinking about it? Is I, that a serious I have thing? a story. I have a story, uh, and I have to. I have to like start asking everyone who, who's a part of it if it sounds interesting to them to do it. But I do have a, good, a story that I really like, but it's also a, a strange movie because it wasn't a huge hit. It was kind of a double, but in the 10 years since it came out, I feel like it's really stayed in the culture. Yes. And it's you know, on TikTok, people are always lip syncing it and, and the scenes are always memes and yep. And everyone watches it when they turn 40. And I feel like the audience has grown. Totally. And so hopefully I can get it together. And uh, but, but now is the moment where I keep saying to people, like, would you want me to do it? So That's right. We'll you got to heard that's a great cast. Everybody's busy and doing so many things. You got to like. Yeah. You got to scheduling that would be hard. But you, I, I will be first in line for that, for sure. Um, well, th thank you so much. I'm, I'm psyched for the book. I'm psyched to see the bubble. How many scenes with the actors wearing masks were there? You know, it's funny because what the movie is about is that it, it, it occurs early in the pandemic when all the rules were still very confusing to everybody. That's very so funny. there's a COVID supervisor on the set who clearly is terrible at his job. Amazing. So the mask supervision is very weak. It's very weak. And also, I don't want anyone's face covered in no, every scene because that would ruin the movie. So just everyone is disrespecting the mask rule all the time. Amazing. They're kind of chewing on it or they're going, I'm drinking, I'm drinking. Like everyone is is, is fudging it the way, you know, in, in life we see. That's super great. Well, I hope I, I see you um, before our annual Hawaii. We missed you in Hawaii this year, incidentally. I know. We, we spent a nice uh, New Year's together. My wife, Leslie, says hello. And, you know, she always reminds me that when... When she was a, a young woman in high school, she would have uh, what she called search for Rob Lowe in Hollywood days where her and her friends, you know, they don't know you at all. But just as a 17, 18 year olds would just drive around Hollywood hoping to bump into you. Uh, and then that. she said that you you were at her school once when she was in college at Chapman with some candidate. Uh, that's the first time uh, uh, with Lloyd Benson. And uh, and so but now she also made a point of saying that uh, you are not her favorite anymore. Uh, your wife, Cheryl, is. And so uh, you you're in a distant second to your wife. <laughs> well, and now and now I get it with in, in, it's same with you. It's like um, 
with certain demographic, my son, John Owen Lowe, you know, as a young actor is going to be the most famous Lowe. You got the bought mm-hmm. appetite. It's like, you know, it's like we got to pass the baton, bro. That's right. Part they, of, this they, is 50. Well, they, they, what I always would say to my kids is the second you do anything that's good, people will not remember I existed. <laughs> I, I will disappear into the ether and that it has happened so fast. The, the adjustment to uh, her being the daughter of me and Leslie to me having to explain that I'm the father yes. has happened. So, you know, that means it's the old age home time for me. That's now I, now I can shut it down. You know, I know. Listen, you know, your, your legacy is, is set. You need not worry, sir. I will. I'll feel good. As I shut down the shop and just binge television for the rest of my life, and and as you uh, as you deal with the clutter behind you in your photo, which I then I'm going to read these books. I'm going to retire and read these books and underline them every single one. <laughs> I had so much fun. Wow, he's he's an amazing man, really amazing. So accomplished, damn, just insane. Um. And I felt like I could have talked to him for another 5,000. Well, we'll have him back. How about that? I think we have him back. Don't you think? We do. I see the light is flashing. That is the lowdown line. Hello. You've reached literally in our lowdown line where you can get the lowdown on all things about me, Rob Lowe. 323-570-4551. So have at it. Here's the beep. Hey, Rob, uh, Dan Bridges here from Sedalia, Missouri. And uh, just so you know, celebrating uh, 12 years of continuous sobriety today. So I wanted to uh, to call your lowdown line and ask you a question. In around 1996 or 1997, I was uh, part of a Marine detachment aboard as a aircraft carrier USS Constellation. And I distinctly remember you coming aboard and I had a probably a short three-minute interaction with you, and not that I expect you to remember that, but I wonder if you remember coming on board and touring the aircraft carrier and if you were doing that as part of preparation for a role or um, kind of what the backstory was behind that. I've been able to find uh, information about you touring other ships online, but not the uh, USS Constellation. All right, hope to hear back from you. Wow. I remember my time on the Connie. I remember the Connie. Um, and it's funny and congratulations on your sobriety because it's funny. What I was doing there was I was with a, a group of people who were all in recovery and we actually led a meeting on the boat. Um, so isn't it funny that you would now be in recovery yourself? Um, and, uh, gosh, the first time you land, I flew out on the cod, you know, and, um, you know, did the tail hook landing and the, you know, got to catapult off. It was, I'll never forget it. Um, and then, and then, yes, I, I, then I got to spend some time in the Abraham Lincoln, um, when it was in Santa Barbara. Uh, but I'm a big, um, supporter of, of our military and, and I, I do a lot of work, um, usually around recovery. I do a lot of work with SEALs down in Coronado and, also a lot of, uh, with their mental health programs and, um, and, in, and my, um, my men's skincare line profile, um, our profits, some of our profits go to uh, wounded warrior. So, um, that's a big part of, of my charitable work on the side, but, um, yeah, what a great memory. I remember it well. Oh my gosh. You kidding me? Smoking cigars with the bro with the bros blow decks on the Connie. Let's go. So good. Um, anyway, thanks for listening. Appreciate you. Um, so thank you for listening. And um, oh, by the way, don't forget, if you're liking Judd Apatow and Comedy Talk, you're going to love Parks and Recollection, the podcast that we do. where We break down every single episode of Parks and Rec and give you the behind the scenes on it. And um, it's super fun with Alan Yang, who uh, wrote on the show all all the years that we were on it. So that's um, Parks and Recollection. Get it where you're getting this. And um, I will see you all next week for Literally. 
You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced and engineered by me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Our researcher is Alyssa Grawl. Our talent bookers are Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Britt Kahn. And music is by Devin Bryant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Literally with Rob Lowe. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.